if you happen to write a 575 haiku without counting syllables and trying, and it yeah. comes out naturally, God bless you. Couldn't have said it better myself, Stanford. That was Stanford M. Forrester from Bottle Rockets. You'll hear more from him in a minute or two. And I'm Patricia, host of this, the Haiku P podcast. Welcome to episode five of the fifth series. Now I have a full podcast for you today, all about Kerouac, whose centenary we're celebrating this month. I was very honoured that Stanford was able to come along and do a workshop for us so that we can try and emulate the poetry of the late, great Jack Kerouac. I hope you enjoy it. Sadly, I had to cut out a great deal of the chat I had with Stanford, and it made me wonder, would you like to be at one of these workshops that I record on Zoom? I'm interested in your feedback. I'd have to charge a little bit for it, but what do you think? Would you be interested? Do let me know. And before I hand over to Stanford, I've got a few quick reminders for you. Last month, I asked you for submissions for split sequences. The deadline is up, and I'm going to be reading them all this month and replying to them. But of course, submissions don't stop, and this month you should be sending me Haiku and Senryu using punctuation, just as Alison Whipple showed us in last month's podcast. And your deadline for that is the 15th of this month. So if you're listening to this on the day of publication, you really only have another week or so left. So get cracking. It's also Highbun month, and I'll be accepting them all of this month of March and reading them in April. So you'll get a reply to those in April if you submit. And a big thank you to everyone who very generously bought me coffee. It really does help with all the expenses I incur for the podcast. It's getting a very wide audience now. And this month, we're going to launch a second supplementary podcast, where poets come along and read their work to us. And we're kicking this off with Kristen Lindquist. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the next podcast, when I read you your wonderful original work using colour. Who knew Brown could be so effective? So without further ado, shall we hear from Stanford? Welcome back to the podcast, Stanford. Before I forget, you probably all know that Stanford herded a merry bunch of poets together last year and created a cat anthology, Window Seats, a contemporary anthology of cat haiku and scenario, available on Stanford's website. Bottle Rockets Press. Details in the show notes. And I'm going to be doing, as you know, we'll talk about later, the, the a bird anthology, which would be a, will be a second in the series. And the cat anthology kind of acts as a model or a sample for the future anthologies. It gives yeah. you the feel for what I'm looking for and the different approaches. Well, so. let's mention it now before we forget. Um, yeah. It's a bird anthology. You're looking for submissions. Where can people find the details if they didn't get my mailing? Um, right now, it's on my Twitter account, which is Haiku with a bang. It's going to be very competitive like the other one. Yeah. In other words, so if I have one poem about, let's say, a bird, I don't know, um, with wet feet jumping on a veranda, like I think it was like Shiki's poem, um, and I get 100 of those, I'm only going to pick the best one of the 100. I don't need 99 other versions. So that's the problem is, so I ask people to really think and go deep into their, think of things that have not been covered about birds. And I'm not looking for ornithology. Mm -hmm. So it's more on a more wide reaching level where you don't have to know anything about birds, but the bird aspect, like the cat aspect, acted as a literary vehicle to discuss things, different things in our human condition. Yeah. And I know you have very specific uh, criteria and I would urge people to read them because you just make it really easy to reject things if you haven't followed the guidelines. When people really read them, it's very basic. It's, it's guidelines that have been around for 20, 30 years that I've taken from other standard journals. It's right hand corner, name, typed, um, nothing on toilet paper or crayons. Um, I just ask people to be as professional as they would like to be treated. 
that just saves me a lot of time so I could focus on the poetry instead of um, cleaning up people's submissions. I'm looking for exceptional poems. So, yeah, I hope it to be around for a while, this, this anthology too. Yeah. Well, I'm working on mine. <laughs> and, <laughs> it really isn't a lot of pressure. Basically, it's just filling, you know, just going basic standard with that, with the, yeah. the guidelines. That's, you know. Well, we're here to celebrate Kerouac today. Um, and I'm so pleased you could do it, not just because you're one of the world's foremost experts on uh, Kerouac and his haiku, or should I say haikus, um, <laughs> but you also understand the Zen of his work, which. Yes. I have a problem with because if anything, I am the absolute opposite of Zen. And Stanford, I was reading a book of poetry today by Wendy Cope, and it's called Anecdotal Evidence. And I came across a poem which is called At 70. And I'd like to read you a bit because it sort of sums me up and, and gives you an idea of the problem you've got in teaching me about Kerouac and, mm. and, and Zen. This is a verse from At 70. It might be better for my health if I were less dogmatical and didn't freak out when a news report is ungrammatical or when a word is mispronounced. If someone says mischievous, I want to shake them and explain it doesn't rhyme with devious. I don't know if you know Gilbert and Sullivan, but it's it's yes. meant to be said at the sort of the rhythm of Gilbert and Sullivan's Major General from Pirates of Penzance. And I definitely didn't do it justice. So I'll put um I'll put a link in the show notes so people can do it themselves. But I thought. Not only does it give you an idea of the problem you've got with me, but it speaks of rhythm and musicality in poetry. And I think some of that is what you're going to uh, tell us about today. Yes. And the interesting thing is that many American fans, readers of Jack Kerouac really don't know, really don't appreciate. I mean, I think a lot of them just don't know that he was writing a lot of poetry. He was always writing a lot of poetry, and his poetry is excellent. Um, it, it, it still holds up. Um, there's parts of his other, I love, I've read everything, you know, he's pretty much written that's been published. And some of the novels just have some issues nowadays that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be PC or whatever. But you have to remember, too, he was writing to be edgy at that time. He was very edgy in the, you know, that we're talking in the 50s mm. or the 40s. He was writing on the, you know, on the road. And then the Hype Dharma Bums was 58, I believe, or 57. So, you know, he had that asp aspect to him that, you know, edge. But it was interesting because the most important thing with Kerouac with the Dharma Bums, which really was the impetus to spread haiku in the United States. And that book just took off. And what it did is it created what they called the backpack nation mm -hmm. and to, to hit the road more than even on the road, I think, and write poetry. And it really was um, a very major book for poets in the United States. It, it, can't, it, can't, it's, it can't be understated. I mean, it's understated all the time. And it also kind of gives you an idea how when how he started haiku and what his lessons were, what he learned. And he, he really took it to a brilliant level. Because the interesting thing, and I want you to know, keep talking about the Dharma Bums, it's a very important book because it is, it's the book that, um, again, spread American haiku, 9575 haiku, may I add. Kerouac did not write any 575. And the issue the, the major theme, which if people don't know Buddhism, kind of miss this in Dharma Bums, is we have Gary Snyder as the protagonist, we have Kerak as, as the hero too. And Gary Snyder is Zen, very Zen. And he is very chop, chop, chop. Because Zen, if you've ever gone to a Zen retreat, you know, the sitting meditation Zazen, um, a lot of it is very structured. It's extremely, extremely structured. So you have Gary Snyder throughout the whole book telling Kerouac how to follow Zen and the structure. And Kerouac, that was not Kerouac's MO. His MO was more loosey-goosey, freewheeling guy. And he described his own Buddhism, Kerouac, as being neutral. So he wasn't at that time when, when Dharma Bums, he wrote Dharma Bums, he says, when I was a Dharma Bum, he already had passed Buddhism by, that stage had passed by by the time the book came out. 
Um, but the thing is that it's interesting what you talk about Zen because Snyder's very Zen throughout the whole thing consistently. And Z Snyder left the United States to go to Japan. So he lived, Snyder lived the Zen life. Kerouac didn't. And in Dharma Bomb is the beginning part where Snyder makes it up the mountain and Kerouac doesn't. Kerouac creates a human hero that doesn't always succeed, that fails. And I think the beauty that is in jeopardy because Kerouac has been, people have been trying to whitewash Kerouac is that Kerouac had tons of problems, issues with, you know, with um, mental issues and substance issues. But to me, that's what makes him such a fantastic writer because he wrote incredible stuff with all these obstacles. Juju beans on Zen manual, my knees are cold. Prayer beads on the holy book, my knees are cold. And Regina Weinreich's book, all his haiku are there. So this is a perfect example of different versions of the same haiku. Mm -hmm. And you could see the one on the right, juju beans on Zen manual, my knees are cold. So that's more of, of a, obviously a Buddhist oriented haiku. But the thing, and of course the season word would be an implied season word of cold. So, but the other thing is, as we know from Zen sitting, Zen is really hard on your knees. And um, so is Catholicism. That's why I'm not a Catholic, I guess, um, is hard on your knees. And so what I think he does here, he go, he has, this could be a Buddhist version or more of a um, Christian version of the same poem. Prayer beads on the holy book, my knees are cold. The prayer beads are what we would call mala beads. And, you know, Christians have um, the rosary. Buddhists have mala beads to do, Tibetans especially do a lot of meditation with mala beads more than I think the Zen. I could be wrong, but I think so. If I had to choose between the two, I like the, the prayer beads one, I think is more universal, um, but we can't deny that he's experimenting. He's dipping into Zen, even though he's not, he has, he's taken the good parts of Zen. He's, he's cherry picked. Um, so even though he's a neutral Buddhist, he has understood Zen. This is a perfect example between the Catholicism maybe and, this, and the Buddhism. Same basic idea that in the end, the poem is the same idea. The essence is the same, not the religion, but the poem. He does a lot of thinking about that, having been brought up Catholic himself. Yes, um, yeah, very he Catholic. Makes, yeah, he makes those comparisons all the time with his work, doesn't he? So you'll find uh, other examples probably where it's it's um, more Buddhist and another where he would sort of refer back to the Christianity side of things. And that was interesting because Tibetan Buddhism is very much like Catholicism and all the mysticism and the, the this and the that, where Zen is very stripped down. Like, you know, Zen is like you're walking around in a loincloth. The Tibetan Buddhism is much more ritualistic. I mean, Zen has its rituals too, but more ritualistic and stuff. So he could go up in between both, but the essence of the poem, no matter what religion it is, is the same. And the knees are cold. It, this is like the trying to become enlightened. And that's the challenge, the, the spiritual challenges. And he writes, he never writes that he's, you know, as far as I know, he never writes that he's um, enlightened. Yeah. And I wondered also if uh, there are other examples that you're going to talk about as well, whether he's, he's slightly mocking himself too in, in his struggle and, and his potential failing. To me, as, as a person who knows very little, so you can put me back in my box, but it strikes me that he's doing his best, he's praying, he's meditating, but his knees are cold and, he's, and that distracts him. And he's sort of mocking yeah. himself for that distraction too. I tell you, the one thing that Zen Buddhism does, I don't care who you are, it takes a toll on your kneecaps. That is part of it because you're supposed to control in Zen. You're supposed to you know, be rational about it. You're supposed to see the suffering or the pain and let it go. So that's, it's, it's basically almost like the idea of the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Crucifixion, if he didn't suffer, would it have not been worth it? Yeah. That's the beauty of these poems 
is they could be read both ways. And there's a new Kerouac Museum about to open up, which is very interesting in Lowell. Mm -hmm. And they're making it in using an old church, Catholic Ooh. church. <laughs> that, this was just announced um, in Lowell. That was Kerouac's church. I think if you're putting a poet in a church, which was once a church, it's we're leaning towards the Catholicism aspect. So Gary mm -hmm. Snyder said to him when he first met Kerouac, he goes, when you die, you'll be given the last rites. You won't, yeah. you won't die as a Buddhist, you'll die as, as a Christian. Hot coffee and a cigarette, why Zazen? This is one of my favorite Kerouac haikus. Well, it's not a haiku because there's no, as far as I know, coffee's not a season word. I could be wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. Cigarettes are not a season word, as far as I know, nor is Zazen. But this is the perfect example of the beat. Okay, mm -hmm. so remember, we we're taking post-World War II, and the, the beats were known for, which was wonderful, is they were taking other people's cultures and admiring them and trying to, trying to take American poetry or the poetry what they had, international poetry, and take it to another place. And this is the perfect example of Kerouac's basically juxtapos juxtaposing with Snyder. Mm -hmm. oh, Snyder was like, chop, 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 Zen, you have to sit Zazen. Some, some Zen practitioners sit for days straight. So, you know, if you've ever been a smoker, um, the idea of a smoking cigarette just gives you that moment of relaxation, you could kind of like tune out the world. Um, so this is kind of, to me, almost like the, the beat idea of Zazen. Well, he says, why Zazen? This is like the beat idea of meditation. All you need is a cup of coffee and a cigarette. I hadn't quite seen that, quite seen that before. So I'm really pleased you pointed that out. It's probably yeah. obvious, but also when I read this, I think he had a problem with authority. Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And to me, also, what, what I read into this was uh, hot coffee and a cigarette. Why Zazen? Sort of, again, looking at what I perceive his relationship with um, Snyder to have been like yes. through the writing, a sort of a butting up, butting of heads yes. between the, the two of them. Well, again, it, it's the idea of mandatory ritual. Yeah. To please God or the church or whatever, mm -hmm. compared to a freewheeling manner of connecting with God or a spiritual thought. Yeah. So again, it's again, it's the neutralness. And again, if it's in your heart, this is what Ker the side Kerouac really took. It doesn't matter if you did so many bows or you, you did so many of this or you did so many of that. Um, and I just think of something too, going back to the last one for one second, Mm -hmm. is with his knees, Kerouac had phlebitis and okay. he had very bad leg problems. And there's always, you always hear about Kerouac standing on his head. Like you go to places and it's in the books. It's, it wasn't that he was doing it for fun. He was doing it to relieve the, the pressure of the blood flowing in, a, in his legs. So he probably even had an extra hard time yeah. sitting. And I know this from personal experience, seeing people at Zen monasteries, you know, doing the zazen. Yeah. You know, he might not have been able to, you know, sustain it. But it's from the heart. That's what he's pushing. It's not. It's not the ritual. It's from the heart. It's. It's. I mean, it's what you you feel. The sound of silence is all the instruction you'll get. This one is a very very Zen style haiku. And what's very, again, this would, well, this, you know, is it a haiku, is it a sentiment? I don't really care as long as it's good. Um, yeah. That's my own personal feeling. I like, I point out things, but, you know, the interesting thing about this is one must know that Kerouac loved slapstick. He absolutely loved slapstick. He has a very long poem recorded about the Three Stooges. And I think what he was able to do was connect the Zen literature of old with the slapstick. And because Zen literature had a lot of snaps, slapstick in it. If you read Korean, Chinese, Japanese Zen literature, you hear the stories like the disciple would say, master, what is the meaning of life? The master would say, look down at your feet. The disciple would look down at his feet and the master would kick him down 
the stairs or down a mountain or something like that. And that was just, so that Zen, what happens is the idea is to jolt you into enlightenment. I mean, that's one, Buddha said, I think there's 84,000 paths to enlightenment, but that is one. And this is one that the Zen people try to do. So Kerouac really plays the Buddhist ascetic, not aesthetic, but the Buddhist ascetic with the aesthetics mm -hmm. and the Zen aesthetic. You're on your own. The sound of silence is all, it's like, that's all you need. And that's very Zen, it's very haiku. Um, and that's, you know, this is all the instruction you'll get and you have to figure it out. That, that, that is so standard Zen. It's, and that, that's what haiku is about in general. We have a big fight in the United States sometimes. Um, you know, about haiku and Zen. And it's like, haiku is not Zen. Zen is not haiku. But it is impossible to deny, and I will go on the book saying this, that haiku definitely has Zen DNA, mm -hmm. as Taoist DNA, Shinto DNA. It's what was around at the time. And I think that's really important because the Karak really said haiku is seeing. It's not looking. It's seeing, and the seeing doesn't have to be always visual, because as we know with Kerouac, with his jazz, which we'll get into, seeing is also hearing, smelling, it's using all the senses. So I love this, and it has his humor to it too, which he let, so, he, so he's not a Zen pr practitioner, but he, lap, he tried it, he lapses on to the Zen ideas, and he really knows how to, to really master it, he really does. Next one. Yep. Okay. This one, you know, so he could, Kerouac could write in many different styles, which is fantastic. You know, it's like he's switching on and off. And this one is in my medicine cabinet. The winter fly has died of old age. So we know it's winter, a quick rundown, medicine cabinet. What does a medicine cabinet have in front of it? A mirror. Yeah. We know it's winter. He is going to the medicine cabinet. Why is he going to the medicine cabinet? Because there's something in there that he would like to take um, for whatever reason. And it's probably empty. And what does he see? He sees a foretelling, the winter fly has died of old age. So he's basically, the whole idea in Zen is seeing yourself as you are, the truth, no, no tinted glasses as it is. And he's forced before he opens that medicine cabinet to look at himself in the mirror. So it's brilliant. And you have the, the sound and how he read it. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. So it's interesting, again, that he's using caps here very much like Blythe, because that's where he learned um, Haiku from was the four volumes of Blythe in the Dharma Bums. It's mentioned in Gary Snyder's yeah. house. Now Blythe lived in Japan next to in, in a um, he was friends with D.T. Suzuki, who was a very strict Zen guy who lived in a monastery. Um, and Blythe in Japan, if you go to see Blythe's grave in Japan, he's buried back to back to D.T. Suzuki. So Blythe, a lot of some people have issues with Blythe, and to me, Blythe is my god. Um, because he was very Zen, he, I mean, and he was. But so those four volumes um, really is what kind of took to the literary community away from 575 because not a single poem. Now, Japanese, now to me, my argument about 575 is if the tutor to the emperor son of Japan didn't do haiku in 575, would, I would prefer to side with the tutor of the emperor of Japan than the other way. I mean, he understood language because Blythe was a Brit and then he moved to Korea and then he moved to Japan. There's a new book coming out in a few months about his letters and his life which in English, which is finally, you know, it's long mm -hmm. overdue. Um, so this is a very, it's a very melodic, it, it, you know, Kerouac uses tone, intonation, all these things that he took from 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 jazz from the, the the beat vernacular which in japan and china as i as i believe that a lot of poetry most poetry was meant to be recited 
And we lose that in the United yeah. States. A big thing I do in all my workshops, and I do it to myself, and people probably think here's a homeless guy walking down the street talking to himself, is I read my stuff out loud all the time, all the time. I do workshops and make people read their stuff because then you're, you're, you're hitting another sense. Yeah. You know, who should have hearing, smell, taste, touch, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we want to look at today is, is yes, read your poems out loud. That's so important. I mean, that's that goes to the heart of a podcast, obviously. But um, also think about your listener or your reader and, and how is that sound affecting them? Yes. What are they feeling? Yeah, because, you know, haiku is so difficult to read, to recite, because it's so short. Yeah. So you really need to capture the audience and mix it up in a way like I've read before and I try not to be, have any monotony with the way I read. I mean, you wanna be put, put the people, the audience into a zone, but you also don't want everything to meld. If you're changing the tone and you see that if you could, I mean, the beautiful thing about Kerouac's haiku is you could go online to YouTube and type in American haikus Kerouac and you could hear him read from that album. Mm-hmm. Is he mixes it up, he, he does a lot of, techniques that are used in jazz, tone, quickness, intonation, bead, meter, all this stuff that you hear in a jazz and sounds. Kerouac loved sounds. A lot of poets will try to avoid a word that's very difficult to pronounce. Kerouac looked for those words. He loved to use those words. He did a lot with like Hawaiian words and other words, or even like Buddhist words like Tathagata, which is a um, honorary name for the Buddha. And um, he loved using those syllables. And if he was going to use the syllables, he was going to make sure that they hit you in a certain way. You know, in my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. The one thing I want to mention as well on, on this one that it struck me in this one is the idea of uh, of love and compassion for all things, yes. regarding human and non-human things. And I think that comes through in this this poem as well. Next one. Wine at dawn, the long rainy sleep. If you read about wine, you look at the, the classical Chinese poets, the, the old story is that they would have po- some people on the top of a river and they would send sake down in cups or wine and teacups down the river. And you had to create a verse or write a poem before the cup passed you. So if you were able to write the verse, you got to drink. Um, so alcohol drinking is very, um, and especially even for Buddhists there, is very common in poetry. It's a common theme. It's, a, it's part of the poetry experience. Mm-hmm. But this, this really kind of shows um, where he's hurting. You know, because like even in this gallery six reading early on, and you could see it, Kerak didn't read it the sixth gallery reading. He was going around asking people for money to buy wine, jugs of wine to pass around to people. Yes. So, and he does does admit in many different ways, um, he has a problem and he he, he hates himself for it because he always looks, it's the same thing that Santoka did. Santoka was a spiritual person like Kerouac and they both wanted to reach this level, the spiritual or religious level. And they just, they were bound by being having human bodies and dealing with the obstacles that the human condition deals with on a daily basis. So this is re- this is a different tone, you know. Wine at dawn, the long rainy sleep. The idea of the long rainy sleep, it's kind of being parallel to the drunkenness and always being in that that alcoholic haze. Yeah. And it's again, it's a poem of longing. It's a poem of wishing you were trying to live by the ideals, yeah. you know? And so this is, I think, a, a very personal poem. And it's not one you see that often. And that's why some of these poems you see all the time and some of them you don't. And that's why the thing is reading this book to prep for this podcast, the book of haikus, mm-hmm. it's, I'm telling you, if I had to take five books to a desert island, this is one of them. Kerouac, you could read him uh, by, on his sleeves, you know, he showed yeah. himself on his sleeves, and this is a perfect example of that. Coming at it from a c- Catholic point of view, 
when I read this one, I felt a huge, huge amount of emptiness. I felt that he was feeling very angry with himself. He was feeling very empty as a person because there's all that Catholic guilt, if you would, yes. if you like, uh, about the, the wine at dawn and yep. then the long rainy sleep. I found my cat, one silent star. I love this poem because it's, for all of us, we don't need to hit people over the head with haiku. Sometimes it's something this short, this small, and haiku, that that's all you need. You, instead of all this wordiness, or it's like trying to hit somebody over the head. You, sometimes you can make a better impression, like example, Santoka, with, with a few words. So he had some haiku, five words, you know? I mean, and this, I found my cat, one silent star. And you could just picture him going outside, looking for his cat. His cat got, either got, got out or was trying to bring his cat in. And of course, a lot of times cats are very quiet unless it's time for dinner. Um, but they are very quiet. And the beauty of it is like he's out there and he's like, he has to go out to rescue the cat or find the cat. But then he has that zenness of notices the one silent star above him. And then, he, and then that makes him contemplate. As in the same as the thing, the cat is by itself, and the star is by itself too. Yeah. So there's a relationship. But I think what and what a lot of Zen and what a haiku does is that when we go out, we don't write haiku; we harvest haiku. We yeah. see and what comes into us. And the idea of what makes haiku work is what Blythe said and what Henderson said was, you know, you you know, a moment of. Um, it's not enlightenment, is it? But it's um, it's something similar to that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 capturing it, and it's mm -hmm. like basically connecting. Um, I'm sorry, I can't think of the word in English now, mm -hmm. um, even though it's my native language. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it's like the idea is in Buddhism, it talks about being hit with a dart. Mm -hmm. The dart doesn't hurt you. The the thinking of being hit with a dart is what affects you. Yeah. So the actual thing. So one thing leads to another, and it leads something is ordinary, daily ordinary could be something enlightening, and that's the beauty of this poem. It's just, and it's it doesn't need more. I found my cat, one silent star. And to me, it's genius because the juxtaposition puts you exactly where where he is. He's look as you said. He's looking for his cat. And because the stars are out, you know, it's it's evening or nighttime. But one silent star to me, and how many times do we all go out early evening, early night, fall, and you see that very first star in the sky, don't you? And you can well, ponder the immensity of the of the yes. universe that we live in. But another thing to take it to another within that is, okay, so we know as being a haiku readers, it's nighttime. Mm -hmm. So in other words, he is looking in the dark. Yeah. He's searching in darkness. And, you know, the cat is the, that metaphor for, you know, spirituality or enlightenment yes. or whatever. Oh, yes. He's in the dark, probably on his knees, looking for the cat in the bushes or whatever. And the, the sign of hope is that that one silent star, it's not a, it's not an astro, I mean, it's not a meteor, it's not a comet, it's nothing flashy. Mm -hmm. um, it's just one silent star, but that's in Zen, that's all, the, the ascetic principle of Zen, that's all you need. You don't yeah. need more. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, and it's such a different style than in my medicine cabinet. Mm. He's, he's looking for something in darkness. Yeah. And, you know, the cat, the cat does represent, in one sense, maybe that star, too, when the, when the cat's inside, you know. So that's yeah. one reason why he, he's put all his love and affection, which he really did, in his cats, you know. B, why are you staring at me? I'm not a flower. Okay, so this one, I love, I love this one because this is total beat. This is, has a total jazz feel, has the total performance feel. But you see, the thing is, I think my, my own personal opinion, and people will be shooting arrows at me now, is you could perform a poem, but if the poem isn't good and could stand by itself, it doesn't stand up. 
This stands up both ways. But he would do, B, why are you staring at me? I'm not a flower. And that's how he did it, you know? So he's giving it the attitude. He's also talking very much in the way that Isa would talk to a flea, um, because Isa was Pure Land Buddhism. And Pure Land Buddhism, there's less of a hierarchy of God, semi-God, demigod, humans, and then you go to the, I think, animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, and the hell realm. So Pure Land Buddhists look as everything like Taoists is the same way as like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't know they were human until they bit the apple, one of them ate the apple, and then they realized they were naked. Mm-hmm. So that's the same idea in Taoism is that we were part, we were part of nature, like what Thoreau and Emerson would say, we're not separate from nature. And by Kerouac talking to the bee, he's not personifying the bee in that sense. He's considering the bee an equal being as him and the flower. He's not a flower. I mean, it goes both ways, but that's what I think the beauty is. It's very bee. And it's like, bee, why are you staring at me? I'm not a flower. You know, it shows the jazz. It shows all the different things um, that he could combine and make it work both ways. When you read it out loud, um, when you perform the, this poem, because it is a performance poem, uh, it makes a huge difference to just reading it on the page, doesn't it? Yes. And, that, and that's the thing, especially with like this next one, too, is hearing him compared to, I mean, reading him is always interesting because I, I do, ex- I expect when I was reading him, his intonations really come through, maybe because I had heard him before. Yes. Of other poets. Nightfall. Boy smashing dandelions with a stick. This poem is probably one of my favorite poems of all time. And it's not one of his most, he reads it. So he really liked it too, because I forgot how many poems he read on that recording. He did the jazz session with Zoot Sims and Al Cohn, two, two saxophone players. And he weaves in and out of the two saxophones, but it's nightfall, Boy smashing dandelions with a stick. Now, this is something that a little boy would do. Oh, yeah. You see it all the time. A little girl, too, maybe. Yeah. Um, you, know, you see him at football games, soccer games, and a kid's like bored or like walking around the place. And he, or like you're, you know, you're coming home from going home from dinner, from playing outside at night. And here's the beauty of this, too, is season word dandelions. Yep. We deal with the moment is nightfall. It's getting dark. And the dandelion is yellow. Each flower, in a sense, is almost like a sun. And the nightfall is happening because he's he's hitting all the suns out. He's knocking all the suns off their yeah. step, knocking the sun out of the sky. And with a, with a stick as he's walking by. Mm-hmm. So, putting I mean, the I, lights out. Yeah, yeah putting yeah. the lights out. So. No, I love this one. It's um, it's one I wish I'd written myself. Yeah, and, and the thing is, what Kerouac can do, which a lot of people cannot no longer do, and this is the Zen aspect that Kerouac did embrace, was Zen mind, beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. And Zen, you need a childlike mind. Yeah. To write these to that level, it's like to write to the, the peak level, you have to have a child mind. When you have that ch- ch- child's mind, you're in the moment. You're not thinking in the past. You're not thinking in the future. It's like capturing that moment, freezing it. Mm-hmm. And that's and this is what, and, and by using a child, it, it's even more enhanced, that idea. Now, this one, too, is very interesting because, like, in, in the book, again, Regina Reinreich takes all of the different versions of the poems and shows yeah. us shows it to us and it, she makes this book work it really it really works so you have two here this is another one that he read in that um, recording with Zoot Sims and Al Cohn and I believe the one he read was the first one glowworm sleeping on this flower your lights on glowworm sleeping on this flower your lights on and then you have another version glowworms brightly sleeping on my flowers but I think the one he probably preferred, at least for performance, would have been the first one. Yeah. What does a glowworm represent? Enlightenment. Uh-huh. Glowworm sleeping on this flower. Your lights are on. So it's, it, it, it's a play. It's a joke, too. It's like, hey, you know, it's almost like your headlights are on in your car. But it's also an admiration, too, because 
you have light and the light is not hot. It's, mm. you know, spiritual light that doesn't have to be hot, you know? And it, it's again, that when he's talking about stuff like that, he is part of nature. He's, he's trying to like Isa, like, you know, about the fleas jumping on his bed, you know, yeah. like kind of like trying to help out the glowworm. Um, glowworm is sleeping, you know, on this flower, your lights on. And on this flower, as we remember in the, when Buddha gave his first talk, the Deer Park talk, he held up a flower when someone asked him what the meaning of life was. And his answer was holding up a flower. So the idea of one flower or a flower in Buddhist terms too, is it's not just the flower, it's the sun, it's the rain, it's the soil, it's the decay, it's everything, it's the sky, it's the heavens, it's all the things that made this flower to, to this day. Mm. Yeah, and, the, the universal. Yes. Yeah. It's the seed, it's the water, it's not, and that's in Buddhism, everything is interconnected. So he's really kind of coming at these poems with that Buddhist um, and Taoist sensibilities. Yeah. Looking at this now, it's glowworms brightly sleeping on glowworms. One is a glowworm. Yeah. So it's more immediate. To me, it's like when you start generalizing, you start losing the, the essence of any poem. The more you the more you zoom in, the more you you, you feel the heart, the taste, again, the, that essence, the yeah. um chi of that poem, the more you go out and generalize or using multiple things a lot yeah. of times. Um, you do not. And the second one, the glow worms, brightly sleeping on my flowers, not on, on this flower, this flower, this glow worm. Last one, I think, or last two, I think. Last two. Tuesday, one more drop of rain from my roof. It's this wabi-sabi. Again, it's the living as an aesthetic, not mm -hmm. as aesthetic. Um, it's like I had a poem that was something like, all day rain, they, they told me this cabin had a roof. All day rain, they told me this cabin had a roof. I think this next poem is in the top five best poems ever written in English. And it's funny because it's never been, as far as I've seen, when they have anthologies of haiku beats or haiku poetry with beats, this is not included in that. It's in the back country, which I love. Mm -hmm. so, so Snyder writes, after weeks of watching roof leak, I fixed it tonight by moving a single board. Brilliant. So this is a, a theme that we see Kerouac um, sharing with Snyder. Tuesday, one more drop of rain from my roof. Um, so it's like, you know, maybe the roof is leaking. And, and it's interesting, he said Tuesday compared to what other day. I'm not sure. Um, one more drop of rain. You know, Tuesday is the beginning of the week. It's not the beginning of the week, but it's earlier in the week. Mm -hmm. uh, one more drop of rain. So maybe we wonder what's going on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Yeah. Or even why, what was wrong with fixing it the previous, over the weekend? But anyway, yes. Yeah. Well, the yeah. weekend he was probably having a party. This is true. You know, I'm serious, you know, and then he, you know, then, it, you know, everything is over and he's sitting home and maybe that's another thing too. Maybe that's why the Tuesday is there. It's the idea of anti-climate, anti-climate. Yeah. Yeah. It's good like, point. You know, it's like after Christmas, you know, you, the big lead up to Christmas or whatever holiday with all the presents, the this and that, and then the big downer of it, it's over. And now I'm by myself, the yeah. company is gone. Now you mentioned it, it's, it's got that empty, that feeling of internal emptiness again. Yeah. Um, From my roof, you know, too. So it's like, you know, which is him, which, which is his chi, his psyche, which yeah. himself, you know, the roof is just, just kind of, you know, a metaphor yes. for um, himself in a sense. Yeah. But, but I'm with you. I'm with you on the Gary Snyder one. It's, um, it's a cracking poem. Yeah. Do you want to read it one last time? Yeah, um, I've never heard this one. After weeks of watching roof leak, I fixed it tonight by moving a single board. And that's a very traditional um, theme for both of these guys. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Snyder lived in a little hut-like house. 
you know, and he was doing Firewatch stuff too. That's how he got Kerouac involved. So, I mean, he had spent his time living in these little places and that's what he wanted. He was very much an ascetic. That's the whole idea too with haiku. You think about the backpack movement was married with haiku. You know, you don't need a lot to write haiku. I mean, you need a notebook and a pen. How do we write like Jack? So we were looking at things, the things we've looked at so far, I guess, are it was a great one for traveling, whether in the United States or his merchant marine career, but he, he also traveled. Uh, he was a fluent French speaker, so I know he was in France. He's yes. been, been to Morocco, also French speaking, I guess. His actual, his actual first writings were in French because yes. he grew up with a French Canadian family. And his first writings, he was originally plugged as Jean Louis Kerouac in the United States. And then oh. that didn't last too long. And then he switched to Jack Kerouac when he, I don't know if it was before his first book, Town and Country, or it was, or maybe it was maybe even before that. But yeah, so he, he, he did speak French and there was that funny, like right towards the end of his life, he did a, a TV show in Canada and he's just going off in French. <laughs> French was his first language. Um, and I think maybe that going back to something you said previously about him um, not being afraid to use foreign foreign words in his poetry comes from the fact that he's he he's a native French speaker brought up in an English speaking world. So, you know, he's got that play on languages. He's not scared of languages. Yeah. And, and Lowell was a it's, it was a mill town. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it's a very it was like the typical Industrial Revolution, American yeah. version of Industrial Revolution mill town. And there was a lot of ethnic groups there, too. Oh. So also, as I say, his travels are not just physical travels, but traveling through different um, religions, traveling through different thoughts, I mean, different philosophies, which I think is almost, might be an American invention. You know, when I read Japanese poems, I don't, I can't think of, of any ideas where like traditional Japanese poets were exploring spirituality outside their realm. Mm-hmm. without their circles and Americans this whole thing of World War II and kind of seeing the desolate you know the desolation that was left by the war and looking for new ideas looking at society and saying guess what society doesn't work mm-hmm. and you want me to follow in this path that doesn't work that's crazy and I think that's what the whole beat idea was about to kind of explore and um so that's where religion, philosophy, and mm-hmm. these guys, they knew their literature. They, you know, Kerak again, he really laughed. He knew his Buddhism. He knew inside and out all the terms. And I, and I really think that's because of the Catholicism. He knew all the technical terms. And, you know, he knew the Zen terms too. But I think his poetry leaned on the Zen side, but his practices leaned more on, you know, more of a neutral Zen. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've highlighted the ideas that he, I've, came across or that were highlighted for me in, in his sort of travels through religion. I mean, we've already talked about the sort of the comparison between his Catholicism and, and, and Buddhism, but what comes out of his poetry to me also, the sort of compassion and mercy and love and this, this state of nothingness, this emptiness. I mean, you've also spoken about his, the way he works with natural phenomenon. Uh, that, that was clear in the, the poetry that came through. And he, as you said, philosophical thoughts on the human condition and impermanence. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole thing of the, you know, in Buddhism, the first noble truth, there is suffering. Mm, yeah. so, so a lot of it too was he wrote about trying to be on the path and his sharing and confessing in a sense mm. that like we all have, um, it's a rocky road and it, you know, it, it, there are challenges and we can't, and the lesson we maybe should learn is we can't beat ourselves up. We're always a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And we can't beat ourselves up f- for something that we want to be, which might be spiritual or holy, but they're spiritual and holy and we're human. So we're not playing in a tilted, yeah. pl- we're playing in a tilted fi- a playing field. It's yeah. not fair, you know? <laughs> nope, quite right. Um, and then other things that we you came out of, I mean, you were clear, forget 575. I mean, there's nothing wrong with 575 if you can make it work, but so often in the English language, it doesn't really doesn't yeah. really work and he adapted and he adapted haiku to the english language again yeah, yeah. If, you, if you happen to write a 575 haiku without counting syllables and trying and it yeah. comes out naturally god bless you but it's vernacular too he was the for one of the first americans 
to use more of a colloquial, I mean, vernacular, it's kind of redundant, but when Blythe's poems, remember he was most of the, most of that, those books were classical haiku poets who talked in a more formal literary style. You know, our thing would be like reading Shakespeare, I guess would yeah. be the example. So he, he took haiku and the idea of the beats too was to make it more accessible for everyone. It wasn't the guys wearing bow ties. It, yeah. was, it was the guys, he wanted, Kerouac didn't want to be on the mountain all the time. He wanted to live in the valley. And that's where everyone else was in the valley. So yes, simple, ordinary, everyday language is great. Write it as you'd speak it. You know, don't go for the literary, don't, don't head to, to Shakespeare. Yeah, and he wanted you to focus on the words. We don't, yeah. we don't chew the words. We just go, we pass over. That's the difference between a lot of Western style poetry where the poetry comes at you. Mm. Haiku, haiku, we have to participate. The poet writes the first part of the circle, we finish the second part. We finish the circle, but we are, we are participating in that. Yeah. And that's why he wanted to have its simple language that there would be no barriers. And again, if the, if the, if the essence of the poem, the meaning of the poem is right and like worth, worthy, then it doesn't need fancy language. Yeah. You don't need to dress it up. It takes away from it. I mean, you said it already. When you're looking at the words, think of the sounds in each syllable and think how your reader will interpret those sounds and, and interpret the words and how they react to them. Thank you very much, Stanford M. Forrester, for coming Thank along and helping us out today. It was, it was great. Thank you very much. I do enjoy working with you. You always make me smile. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. It's always wonderful to be here. I look forward to reading your haikus um, that you're going to send to us as a result of this presentation. Don't forget, much like with uh, Stanford's bird anthology, do go and read our submission guidelines and criteria. And Stanford, I'm looking forward already to our next workshop. Um, we have already have something sort of planned for either later this year or um, or next year. So don't worry, Stanford will be back. Thank you again. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. I hope Stanford gave you a lot of things to think about and inspired you to go away and write like a beat poet. Submissions will be next month. So once you've sent me your punctuation haiku and your haibun, you can start thinking about that. Your best work, please, because there's lots of competition to be on the podcast and in the Poetry P journal. So, next time, please join me to listen to the original poetry that you composed using colours. You did me proud. There's lots of great work to discover. So until we see each other again, keep writing. There's lots of bits and bobs in the show notes this time, so do go along and have a look. And if there's anything missing, as always, email me and I'll put it right. Ciao!